Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. These days, it's easy for our lives to feel like they're getting a bit out of control. That's why I'm looking forward to being joined by my guest this week, minimalist, filmmaker, podcaster, fellow hipster coffee lover, and YouTube superstar, Matt Diavella. Matt's probably best known for directing the Netflix documentary Minimalism, which asks the central question, how might my life be better with less? But before we get into the meat of our episode, I'd like to let you know about a new offering from Dr. Rick Hansen. If you've been listening to this podcast, you probably already know that regular meditation and practice can improve your physical and mental health and help you grow resilience and lasting happiness. But life is busier than ever these days, and it can be challenging to fit that regular practice into your daily routine. So you may want to check out Rick's new Growing the Good monthly meditation program that's starting in March. It includes a live guided meditation and Q&A each month, meditation downloads, weekly encouragement and inspiration, practical applications for daily life, and lifetime access to all of the recordings. We also have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you sign up now, you can save 10% if you enter the code BEINGWELL at checkout. You can follow the link in the description of this episode to access the program, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So, on that note, getting into our actual material here, Matt and I initially connected because Dr. Rick Hansen was one of the featured guests on Minimalism, and Matt created a wonderful short video highlighting that segment about eight months ago. I'm also a personal fan of his work and have followed his YouTube channel for a while. Uh, Matt, it's great to have you on the podcast, so thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. Excited to talk with you. Awesome, for sure. So in a recent video that you shared, you mentioned that you were planning on doing a variety of different habit formation challenges each month for the next year or so, things like taking cold showers or giving up sugar. Uh, One of them that you mentioned is giving up caffeine for a month. And as a fellow coffee Mm. nerd, I can only imagine how terrified you are for that one. So is that one you're particularly not looking forward to? I'm worried. And and most of them I'm not looking forward to. Like cold showers, sure, I'm sure. not looking forward to. I, and I think that's the point is that sometimes we get a little bit too comfortable and mm. we forget what it's like to, to push ourselves to a place to feel discomfort and actually to overcome something that's difficult. And I think it's it's just a good practice to to test those limits every once in a while. And coffee... It's a part of my daily routine. I don't drink too much, but at max two cups, but mm-hmm. minimum one for the past sure, yeah. s- maybe five to 10 years. Wow. And I, I mean, I have actually tried uh, to, to quit coffee and to give it up and not to do it forever, but just like, hey, it'd probably be good to take a month off. And mm-hmm. then within four days, screaming headaches, just saying like, thing, yeah. I cannot get any work done right now. So I need coffee or else I'm not going to be mm-hmm. able to push through and I'm going to be so uh, unproductive. So I- I'm trying to plan ahead with that 30 day challenge where maybe if I can't work for a week because my headaches are so bad, I'm still able to actually uh, have stuff that's in the queue and ready to go. Yeah, out. for sure. I mean, if you can carve it out in your schedule, that's great. I, I remember one of the video, one of the first videos I think I saw of yours was the one on uh, Zen and the Art of Coffee, where you had your friend come in and critique your, your coffee making procedure. I just thought it was completely hilarious. Uh, for me, I love having it, as you mentioned, kind of as a part of my morning routine. So how important to you is that feeling of routine to start your day? Routine is really important to me. And, and even as we discussed a little bit before the podcast, it's just traveling has always been tough for me. And mm. I have traveled quite a bit since I started working professionally uh, around the country first. And then eventually I got a passport and I started traveling internationally. And while I love the experiment uh, experience and I enjoy doing it a few times a year, it can be really disruptive to your schedule. So I have tried to even... Uh, even do videos covering how can I stay healthy while on the road. Mm. And I realized that you have to build completely new routines because you don't have the gym that you normally have. You don't have the access to the coffee brewing kit that you normally have. Sure. Yeah. Uh, So you have to be very creative and, and proactive before you even go on the trip. But having my routine on a daily basis, waking up in the morning, making a cup of coffee, checking emails, having a glass of water, like the few things that I do uh, help to keep me grounded and also help to make sure that I'm productive and I'm actually doing the work that I wanted to do and mm-hmm. pursuing the projects that really excite me most. So uh, whether it's a morning or nighttime routine, they're not always set in terms of I have to do this and then this and then this. Sure, it's not yeah. a ritual, 
but it definitely has helped me a lot to, to stay productive. Was that a conscious process of establishing something like that, or did it just kind of happen organically? I think it's a it's a conscious process. Originally, it started out with me just writing down my entire schedule for the day on a notebook before mm. I went to bed. So it was not even just a morning or nighttime routine. It was like, all right, this is how I'm going to fill my day. And 6 a.m., I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. And then just went through the entire day also setting timers. I'm a little bit type A. I'm a little bit neurotic, <laughs> but it's like, okay, I'm setting a 15 minute timer for email because, you know, it's so easy, especially with a lot of these apps that we're on to just get swept away with it. And then yeah, totally. And then just be like, wait a minute, what was I doing? And then so I'll do these things like set a timer or just set a schedule for the day and try to stay to it as close as possible. Uh, but we're always, I think, a little bit more ambitious, but what we think we can get done in a day. So oftentimes mm-hmm. I have to push it to the next day and then just kind of recalibrate. But just setting up that system in the beginning was important for me to get it down in writing. So then I could eventually start to bring it into my days without even thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's really similar to my experience with it, just kind of moving through where Somewhere in there, I just got into this practice of getting up and then immediately jumping in the shower and after that immediately going and making a very specific breakfast and making the coffee and then kind of rolling over. And at that point was sort of when my day started. And I've talked about it a little bit in the podcast on the past, just the power of like establishing the experience of having accomplished something. Hmm. Yeah. And some people have, have recommended making your bed in the morning. Like having oh, I remember that one. They're like the Navy yeah. SEAL process. You make the bed something. right when you get out of it. Yeah. And I've heard like Tim Ferriss talk about it. And mm-hmm. I do that. And it does it does feel good. And then mm-hmm. especially when I was working from my bedroom, it was nice to have a clean room. And also, I, I, I don't know how much these things play into it. I'm not a very spiritual person. Sure. But I do believe like that like light affects us and you know when mm. you're getting ready for bed and your circadian rhythm and also if you're living in a chaotic crazy house where there's clutter everywhere all over the place it can be stressful and it can feel like you don't have things in order and you don't have your actual life in order mm-hmm. uh, and i think sometimes the it's i guess a, what my friend josh milburn from the minimalist says it's our physical clutter is a manifestation for what's going on inside mm-hmm. and yeah, wow. for a lot of people i think that's true Yeah, I think that that's a draw for many people. And that's how a lot of them get into minimalism in the first place, whether it's Marie Kondo or whatever else, just the idea of like tidying up your physical environment so that you can then do the important work, whether it's in your actual work life or internally, whatever it might be of kind of tidying up. So kind of speaking of that, like, how did you get into minimalism? Was it through that process of decluttering? What was kind of the primary draw for you? Yeah, I think the stuff is... is interesting. I didn't have a lot of stuff at the time and I didn't feel Mm. overwhelmed by clutter. For me, it had more to do with this idea of of success and Mm. how I thought about success in my life. Because at the time when I came across minimalism, I felt like a failure. I had just moved Mm. in to live in my parents' basement uh, with my, I believe, four brothers and sisters were were there at the time. I come from a a family of seven kids. So I was in the basement and I had just graduated from college. I had $97,000 in student le- loan debt. I bought a brand new car for whatever reason. I thought that would be a good decision. Now I've got $113,000 <laughs> in debt. And I'm just like, I just feel like a failure. And I also feel so far off from a place of success because I mm. thought I had to get all this stuff. I needed to get the flat screen TV. I needed to move out of my parents' house. I needed to um, get a nicer luxury car and do all these things in order to finally be happy. Sure, yeah. And then I came across minimalism. It's weird. It was through a guy named Tom Shadiak. He's a Hollywood director. He directed some some of like the best comedy in the 90s with Jim Carrey. And he's got a documentary called I Am. But he was doing an interview with, uh, who was it, Carson Daly. It mm-hmm. was like Last Call with Carson Daly. And he just did this interview where he was talking about simplicity. He was like, simplify, simplify, simplify. It's like the most you know life-changing experience to simplify your life. And he went from this massive 10,000-square-foot mansion to moving into a trailer park, into a, a, like a small, like a beautiful trailer park community in Malibu. And I just thought to myself, like, you can do that. That's an option. Mm, mm-hmm. You don't have to go after all this stuff. Because I felt like internally, I had to do that to prove to everybody that I was successful and to prove to myself that I was successful. 
But then I saw this guy who got everything and it started to help me question the norm of mm. success. And then from that point on, it was, yeah, let me, let me go through this. And then serendipitously, I start to hear about the minimalists online and other people talking about minimalism. And now there was a name for it. And now they had a process and some steps that you could take to declutter your home and get rid of your stuff. And for me, it didn't take very long. It was maybe three days. And I had sure, gone through yeah. all of my stuff and, you know, a couple garbage bags of clothes that I donated and some trophies when I was in Little League that I threw out. And from that moment on, it was just the redefining of what I wanted my future to look like, which had the mm, greatest mm-hmm. impact versus the actual stuff. How would you say that you're defining success then differently these days? Like, how has that changed for you since you've embraced this kind of new philosophy? Yeah, so it's certainly not based around material things or items. And I try to my best to be happy with wherever I am. So even mm-hmm. if I'm in an apartment that's a little bit too small, that it would be great to have a two bedroom so I could have a studio to to turn one bedroom into. I try to be happy and, and be thankful for what I currently have. And I think that's something that I didn't do before. Before it was always, I need this and then I can be happy. But then when I started to make that shift to be like, hey, what can I be thankful for right now? Yeah. What can I be happy about? What can I celebrate? And like my partner, Natalie, and I are always trying to find excuses and reasons to celebrate, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, somebody said something really nice in an email, somebody who I really respect uh, sent me a nice letter or uh, something happens at work that Natalie, like she lands a really big client or a really big project. And, and that's something to celebrate as well. So success has, has been defined more in like, also how I find balance in my life. So Mm. am I finding time for my health? Am I exercising frequently? Do I feel alive and excited about the projects that I'm working on? And it's not perfect. And I don't have a a recipe for like, this is what it takes for me to be successful because there's a lot of variables that, you know, we need to always constantly push ourselves. And if, I did the same exact thing every day for work for 20 years. I think I would, would be unhappy. So in a lot of regards, yeah. it's about pushing yourself and even going back to 30 days of cold showers, making yourself feel uncomfortable, <laughs> testing yourself and doing things that you never thought you could do. Those are the ways that I try to find success today. When you think about why most people leave their jobs, mm. oftentimes I don't think it's about money. I don't think it's that this company's not paying me enough money. Yeah. It's that they don't feel like they're growing. this rat race does start to develop where you you keep climbing up. And a lot of times you, when you're climbing up, you may not be doing work that actually you love. Maybe when you started, you were, you know, a a video editor and that's what you really love to do. And video Mm -hmm. editing was your passion. But eventually you you become, you know, an assistant producer and then a producer and a director. And then you realize like, wait a minute, I'm doing work that I don't actually, I'm not fulfilled with. Mm. And I think that's why you need to constantly ask yourself questions and you need to check in with yourself, whether it's every six months or 12 months, like you do with personal finance, where you need to Mm. realign and readjust your, your finances because you, you have more stocks now than bonds and you have to just make this mental check and then put it in your calendar. Every six months, I'm going to do a check-in with myself, make sure that I'm still happy, make sure that I'm fulfilled. Uh, Amber Ray does this really cool thing where she does it, a daily practice of it where she goes through her notes and she will write whether, you know, did something drain me of energy or did it give me energy? And mm. then it's just a daily mm. process for her to see which items on her to-do list she would love to continue to do and which ones she might want to eventually delegate or hire somebody to take care of in the future. Yeah, I think that's a great framework. And it also really dovetails with a lot of the things that we touch on throughout the podcast and in Dr. Hansen's work in general, just the idea of fully experiencing a positive experience so that you can take it into yourself and use it as a resource to build changes in neural structure and function over time that the brain adapts by feeling those positive things. As you were talking about with your partner, Mm. just kind of really feeling opportunities to find those good experiences or really identifying the things in your life that are leading to positive growth for you, as you were describing in that method right there. Yeah, by the way, too, uh, that interview with Dr. Hansen was one Mm. of my favorite in minimalism. And it was, I think, one of the first true experts that we interviewed. Because we Mm. talked to a lot of bloggers, and and they're experts in their own right, but they're more on like their own 
anecdotal, like this changed my life in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talk, talking to Dr. Hansen was, was eye-opening, and I think he definitely changed the shape of the film and helped me to understand what's actually going on and why mm-hmm. people aren't happy. When I asked yeah. him that question, I'm kind of bummed out. I didn't, I didn't get to include this in the film, but I did include it in that short video you mentioned. Yeah. But I said, like, why are most people discontent? And then there's this pause where he just waits for like maybe five seconds, and he's like, greed. And then he goes on to talk a little <laughs> bit more about why that's why we're unhappy is because yeah. we constantly need more and more and more. And we can't just sit still and actually be happy. And then also providing a framework to be mm. able to actually turn that around, to be able to focus on the good and mm-hmm. not give so much power to the bad. Yeah, no, I, it was great to see the piece. And it's also really great to hear that, by the way. That's a wonderful, you know, a wonderful story and a wonderful note. And it's really appreciated it. I think that for a lot of people, part of the process is about understanding what they actually need and recognizing that they do have fundamental needs inside of themselves. Because we've turned needy into a very bad word socially, Mm. where it's this real negative to be quote unquote needy. But the reality is that we're all needy fundamentally. We all have needs that we have to fulfill in a variety of different ways. And if we don't do that, we're going to be unhappy. And I think that a lot of people think that they can just kind of like suppress their needs over time. And if they just push it down, it won't be a problem. And they can kind of soldier on and keep a stiff upper upper lip. And that works for a while. You know, you can go through bursts of just kind of getting things done in life. That's really important. But long term, it's going to burn you out. And it's not actually going to fulfill you on a deeper level, which is why kind of this whole process of recognizing the things that really do bring you joy, to your point, is so important, I think, for just a, a healthy and happy life kind of more long term. Yeah, one of the the lessons I got recently from an interview with Greg McEwen, which hasn't come out yet, probably it will in the next month or two, mm-hmm. but it's this idea of allowing for some buffer time. And I do this in other areas of my life. I just never really thought about doing it to my personal and work life in general. Mm-hmm. So when you know, you're going to go out on a date or you have a meeting with somebody and it's going to take 30 minutes to get there, people who maybe aren't thinking ahead, they leave with 30 minutes to go. And always something happens and then you can't find parking or you end up parking five blocks away and you got to run there and you're inevitably late. This drives me crazy, by the way. Yeah, if you... If you if it takes you 30 minutes to get there in Google Maps, that doesn't mean that you should leave with 30 minutes. Exactly so, right. You're you're walking out the door with 30 yeah. minutes to go and I'm just like, "Oh my god." All right. Yeah, it's never going to work out right because by the time you get down to your car, you're already late. Like you're already exactly, yeah. two two minutes right there that was added onto the trip. So I always add buffer time when I'm traveling. I add an mm. extra 15 minutes. If you get there early, I'm early all the time. Maybe I'll wait in my car if it's a podcast that I'm going to, like I'll do this where if I'm going in person to meet somebody for a podcast, I'll wait for 15 minutes around the block like a creep yeah. and then pull up when it's <laughs> the actual time because I'm, I'm, I would rather not have to worry about traffic, stressed about it the whole time. And I think that's what Greg was trying to say that we should do with our personal lives. So... You know, if you think Hmm. that it's going to take you till 5 p.m. to get your work done, then just understand that it's probably going to take you till 530. But make sure Mm. that you have buffer in there between that next activity. So you're not just going like, I just got done with work. Now I got to make dinner because my wife's going to be home and then I got to do this and then I got to do this and I got to do laundry and then I got to stack everything back to back to back without breather time. And I think that buffer or that breather will will help to give you some clarity on your day. That way you can step back and see the big picture, too. Because if you're always constantly rushing from one thing to the next, you're not going to see, like you said, those times when you're in need. Yeah, for sure. I was talking with uh, Lori Deshane in the last interview that I did semi-recently, and she's the editor of tinybuddha.com. And she had a comment that I thought was, was really, really impactful for me, which was this idea where she was getting to the end of the day, and she had worked really hard throughout the day. But at the end of the day, she didn't feel like she'd accomplished anything. And I really resonated with that. That was very resonant with me. And what she said was a big turning point for me was when I stopped viewing this as a moment of like me being bad and more as a moment of my to-do list being bad. Mm. And that was a big game changer for me also just internally going, wow, that's a really interesting reframing where if you're working really hard throughout the day and you get to the end of it, and you don't feel accomplished, you don't feel like you X'd enough off of your to-do list, the problem was probably with the to-do list. You know, there was probably a sense of sprawl that happened, as we've kind of been talking about here, where the task just kind of got out of control, 
and you were rolling constantly from one into another without the opportunity to take that breather and kind of go, whoa, I've actually done a lot today. Yeah, a lot of people don't think that they have control over their lives. Mm. And and maybe they don't, but it's just because they haven't taken control. And a lot sure. of times, so when you say like, oh man, the media, it's so, like, so sensational or it's so negative or I find myself comparing myself to people all the time on Instagram, you have control over that feed and who comes mm. into it. Mm-hmm. Even the ads, they're, they're serving you ads based upon the things that you're already looking at. Mm-hmm. So yeah, totally. it's, it's funny. You can get this experience by just looking at somebody else's social media feed. You ever pick up somebody's phone or like you're scrolling through their Instagram. And maybe like my, my partner's phone and my phone is the same. So I might accidentally look through her Instagram. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, who are these people and who is she following? And <laughs> it's I'm a like, totally oh, yeah. different world out there. It's yeah. A, it feels like a totally different app. So yeah. you you have a choice. And I think that we really should make sure that we can curate our feeds. And even with the to-do list, especially, it's like we can curate our lives and we can mm. decide what to pick up and also what to let go. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of curating your feed, you went through a process recently where you did a 30-day social media detox and kind of entirely unplugged from it. What was the experience of that like? I think that's something a lot of people struggle with these days. Yeah, I think I gave myself uh, a little bit more credit than I should have in, in that I thought that I needed to do social media for my business. And a lot of people will give this excuse, especially creatives. It's like, I need mm-hmm. to be on social media. It's my job. It's what I do. Yeah. But in reality... It's not what I do. I'm a filmmaker. I make videos. And, you know, I still used YouTube, but I would consider that more of a platform because I wasn't using it in a way to like connect with other people or to see what other people were doing. It was simply mm. just to share my content. So I took off from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and it was difficult in the beginning. And I actually had continued, I got a little bit of flack for this, but I, I said, I'm going to still post because I just want to. I want to have all the positive effects of being able to post, but not have the negative effects of comparing myself to others, the distraction, the time that it wastes every day. I mean, it sounds like a nice, if you can pull it off, it sounds like a great mix. Yeah. But then I didn't have the feedback loop anymore, which it, within a week I decided like, I just stopped posting. I just stopped caring. I didn't care what Mm. people were saying. I didn't care. And I was like, I don't have the time for this. I got all this other stuff that I need to be doing that's way more important than social media. And then I started to realize that a lot of it, a lot of Instagram specifically, is people trying to look cool and not exactly people who are making cool stuff. And I would Mm. rather Mm -hmm. make cool stuff than spend 30 to 40 minutes trying to make myself look really good and find the best angle for this photo that I can share today. And to each their own, people have built careers and businesses on Instagram, but I have found that for me, the negative effects of it, the hour to two hours, I think most people spend four hours on their phones every day, most of it on social media. I was spending about an hour to an hour and a half on my phone, and that's been significantly reduced now where it's maybe 20 to 25 minutes I'm using my phone. And what happens Mm. when you're not on your phone you have more time, you have more time. So then you don't feel stressed out. You don't feel like you're pushing everything to the last minute or you're procrastinating uh, and doing, working on the project on Sunday night when it's due on Monday. Uh, It definitely helped to get my priorities in order and like reallocate that time that I was otherwise using as a distraction. Yeah. So the results of that have really stuck with you since you replugged in to a certain extent. Oh yeah. No, I honestly... It's, I thought that I would actually just go back to using it as normal, but the changes were so profound at the end of the 30 days that I was like, I can't go back to what mm. I was doing normally. And so I, maybe I post every once in a while. So I, it's always deleted. Instagram's never on my phone. Twitter is never on my phone. I don't oh, have okay. email on my phone. Yeah, it's, smart. if you look at it right now, it's not on it. And But what I will do is maybe once... Every two to three weeks, I'll log into Instagram and I'll make a post. And maybe down the road, I might start to schedule some stuff more. I'm not mm-hmm. a- against that idea, but I don't think I will continue to use it in the same way. And I have to say there are some downsides and negatives to it because when I was on social media, I did feel more connected to the people, the other creators that I had mm-hmm. become friends with. Sure. And I just knew that some things will have to fall. If it's me seeing what other people are doing, that's okay. If it's me being connected with those other creators, I'm going to have to take some extra effort to meet up with these creators in person. Um, but you can't, I don't think you can have it all. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's pretty well said there. 
A little while ago, you mentioned something that kind of stuck out to me. You said that this thing had a name when you were talking about finding minimalism for the first time, where you were going out, you were like, oh, I'm, what's this minimalism thing? I'm really interested in it. And that's kind of been my experience as well, where it feels like over the past maybe, I don't know, five years, minimalism as a concept has become a much more broadly accepted topic. It's something that people are kind of aware of. Why do you think that it's increased so much in popularity recently? I think in part, it's it's definitely largely driven by our culture and where we are mm. as consumers. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have tried to find happiness through consumption or at least distraction through consumption. But we're realizing that there's not true meaning there. And I think that we've just acquired a ton of stuff. If you, mm. if you look at just the cost of goods going down, people being able to afford to buy more stuff. If you went into my parents' Uh, shed right now it's just filled with stuff like my grandparents stuff they got some of their stuff in there there might be even some of my stuff mingled in there somewhere yeah but we just accumulated a lot and people can very easily get overwhelmed and overwhelm is not a good feeling to have and then minimalism comes along and says hey not only will you be able to kind of clear through some of your stuff but you're able to hopefully if you follow this process and you stick to it find some meaning in your life and you'll find something to replace the shopping, the buying stuff, the always fixated on material things. And there's nothing wrong with buying stuff. And everybody needs to buy stuff. We all need to wear clothes. Otherwise, this interview would be very awkward right now. But <laughs> it, it, it definitely is, is, is helpful to clear that away. And then just to be more mindful about it in the future. And I find that it has impacted other areas of my life as well. So it's not just the buying of things, but then obviously my bank account becomes a little Mm. bit more healthy. I can save money a little bit more easily. Mm -hmm. Now with my work life, I apply some of the same principles and I'm like, do I really need to do this meeting? Do I really want to edit every single podcast of mine? Or can I hire some people to help do it for me so I can focus on what I really love? Uh, And I think that that the the main thing is, is, uh, is this idea that there's like a crisis of meaning. And I think Mm. people are lacking meaning and they want to find it. And minimalism comes and says, this is not going to completely fix everything about your life, but it's going to get you started. Speaking kind of in that vein, your most popular video on YouTube is a pretty great piece of satire called A Day in the Life of a Minimalist. And it's cracked, I think, 7 million or so views, which is completely insane, by the way. So congratulations it's, no, it's on weird, that one. That was, just a, that was like a couple months ago, dude. <laughs> that was, yeah. I mean, realistically, in the grand scheme of things, I've only been doing YouTube for about a year and uh, yeah, that video just took off like in a way that I never thought would. But it's it's cool. It's funny too, though, because then you when you break that threshold, then mm. people are watching it who aren't just those that were already following your stuff or are interested oh, in yeah. minimalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's interesting to hear other people's thoughts on minimalism because some people think it's a cult, some people think it's totally crazy, some people think it's dumb. But that is another thing about the word too is that mm. it's a bit sensational. It feels. For a lot of people, it feels really scary. But at the very least, I think it starts hmm. a conversation, which is good. Why do you think it's scary for people? Like, why does it kind of turn people off? Some people find it, I think, as a, a judgment against themselves. And that's hmm. one thing I struggled with when I first started talking with other people about minimalism. I wanted to share my excitement of this lifestyle without uh, making other people feel like I was judge- judging them. So... Yeah you know, it was tough in the beginning because I was very excited about it and I wanted to talk about it. And I sure, did yeah. with a few people. But then for the most part, I was like, eh, this is in the background now. It's something that I've implemented in my, into my life. But it's like, I don't want to be the person being like, hey, my name is Matt. I'm a vegan. You know, like, I don't want to tell you I'm a minimalist right away. I'm not a vegan, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody knows those people who just, they, they want to tell you like everything sure. about their life right away and why they're living the perfect opt- optimal life. Yeah. It's like, eh. I think it's better to just let some of those things be learned once you get to know somebody. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of that, like very optimized life and the kind of external look that people could have at that minimalist lifestyle as being this kind of idealized structure, how has your day-to-day life actually changed practically since you've embraced minimalism? Like what's not there now that was there before? What were the things that you found? I want to pull this out of it, if anything. Yeah, so I've been a minimalist for about eight, nine years now. It was mm-hmm. really in 2010 when I first started to embrace it. And I was a, mm. a much different person then. I had just graduated college. So my life circumstance was totally different. I will say that the biggest thing is 
I mean, I wouldn't be here today. Obviously, I made a documentary about minimalism that's changed my life. But then also yeah. just like the daily practice and, and what I focused on over those nine years, there's like a compound effect. And it's the directions that we take our life. And me deciding, okay, I'm no longer going to focus on the material stuff. I'm going to be focusing on what I really love, which is making films and eventually trying to turn a freelance business into creating original films and coming up with ideas uh, and pursuing my passions in that regard, talking about self-help and trying to make it more accessible for people than some of the intimidating, over-the-top self-help videos and yeah, stuff sure. you see online. There's a lot of stuff that's like intimidating for people and a lot of people think it's corny as hell. So I'm trying mm-hmm. to, to you know bring that to the space. And I mean, on a day-to-day basis, everything has changed. It's, mm. it's hard to like, my life would be totally different. I would be a different person sure. living in a different yeah. apartment or I probably have a really nice house right now that I couldn't afford. Um, yeah, sure. Maybe racked with guilt, who knows? You know, yeah, I mean, and I've made decisions <laughs> over the past 10 years, like stopping freelance work where I was doing really well, I was making mm. good money working with freelance clients to put all that on hold, to stop all of that and say, all right, you know what? I'm actually going to try to start a YouTube channel, make a podcast, and I'm Mm going to give it, give up all my financial income and my stream coming in. Mm. And that's something that I don't think I would have done if I wasn't focused on what was really valuable to me and Mm. really important to me. If I hadn't asked those questions about myself, about what I wanted out of life and what I wanted to give to this world, then I don't think uh, I would have made those kinds of radical decisions. Did that event, moving from being a freelancer to being an independent creative, have a catalyst behind it? Was there some moment where you just looked at it and decided to embrace this? Was there something that you developed inside yourself that catalyzed that change? I think it was a, it was a few things. A lot of lessons you have to learn for yourself. You mm. you know you know oh you know it's 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 not about the destination; it's about the journey. And no matter how many times you hear that, you're like, okay, yeah, sure, but it's going to be about the destination once I get the finish line. <laughs> And then you have to actually experience that and go through it and Mm. have that feeling of like, oh, I can't wait until this is over to realize, oh my God, I actually really loved it. And now that it's over, there's nothing. (laughs) There's nothing to work on, nothing to focus on. And I experienced that with minimalism where it was like, oh my God, this film is the most ambitious thing I've ever done. It's the first feature length documentary that I've created. Yeah. And I finished it. I made it. I put it out there. And then I was like, okay, now what? Now what do I do? Mm Mm-hmm. And then minimalism did pretty well where I made a pretty good income from it. And I was able to also in alignment with my freelance work, create a bit of runway Mm. and say, all right, well, now I've got six months to 12 months of runway where all my expenses would be paid so I could continue to live like I am now. What would I do if money wasn't even a decision point? What would I do Mm. right now if I had all of the money in the world? Just pretend like Mm -hmm. you you were just given $10 million. What would you do with your life? A lot of people think they'd be on the beach drinking mimosas, but that would get boring after like three weeks. Sure, Uh, yeah, it's a great vacation, but maybe it's not what you want to do for the rest of your life. Yeah, because again, it needs to come back to that meaning. Like what would Mm -hmm. really be fulfilling for you to do? So then it was, was, you know what? I don't know exactly what it's going to end up looking like, but... I want to start a podcast. Obviously, I love making films and I want to be able to tell my own stories and have an audience that would be willing and interested to hear from me. Mm. And so I just took the first step and like it was very rocky in the beginning, very shaky. I made a lot of mistakes, you know, 5, 10, 20 subscribers in the first month and it doesn't look like it's going to be growing anywhere substantial. But even though sometimes things don't look like they're growing, it doesn't feel like you're growing when you look back over six months, you can you can start to see the progress. And when you look back over two years, you can see a massive difference. Mm. Yeah, if you could talk to, you know, not to be cliched here, but if you could talk to Matt from two years ago, is there anything that you would want to say to him? Is there like a core piece of advice that has really changed things since that time? I think the one thing is we we feel like, why should I put in the effort now? Because I don't, nobody's following, nobody's watching, nobody cares. Yeah, nothing's happening right now, so just why should I keep trying? Yeah, but yeah. nobody's ever gonna do it if mm-hmm. you don't actually mm-hmm. start delivering your best work and creating your best stuff. So that's the most painful period, and it feels like the most ironic in that you're like, I'm pouring myself, everything I have into this, and nobody cares. And nobody should care <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. You haven't put in your time yet. 
And it took a very long time. And you learn a lot through that kind of consistency where say if you're like, I'm going to make a video every week or I'm going to take a Mm. photo every other day for like the next year. There's a amount of consistency where you're getting better at your craft, but you're also, even if you're reaching 5, 10, 15 viewers, you're starting to get some feedback and you're starting Mm -hmm. to realize, okay, is this work? This might not be working. People are responding well to this. Maybe I should focus more on that. And then you're learning. And that's the process. It's just, I think that if I would have started out from the beginning, putting everything I had into every video that I made on YouTube, Mm-hmm. And also, like, I've learned just a lot about YouTube in general and how to sure, create yeah. for the platform that you, that you naturally learn. But I think that I would have would have grown more. But at the same time, the pivotal decision was just it was just starting and it was getting over the doubt that was holding me back. What are my friends going to think? What are my family going to think? People are going to make fun of me. And then it was like Natalie, my partner, just telling me, like, who cares? <laughs> just mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. Just, just, you know, just start the podcast. And actually, you know, like I said, nobody listened, so it didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a great point. I mean, most of your first reps are taken without an audience. And I think that kind of understanding that and embracing that really can be really freeing because the pressure's off. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, and then I think it was the transition of, hey, now a lot of people are watching. Now, if I upload a video, 20,000 people are going to watch this thing. Then you get the the other kind of nervousness where you're like how am i going to deliver every time Mm -hmm. but then you get over it and like everything in life it becomes a new normal and you become more confident in your own skin and and creating on a consistent basis and if anything it just pushes you even harder to want to deliver the best quality stuff you can yeah i think that that's really what professionalism comes down to to a certain extent whether it's professionalism in your work life or applying to these broader ideas of personal growth and personal development is that consistency just being willing to do what you have to do for a video to appear on youtube every every week or month or doing what you have to do for the pictures to be on instagram or the podcast to be out there on itunes whatever it might be because a lot of people just get buried by the lack of consistency yeah and i think that um try not to make excuses Cause it's easy to come up with excuses mm-hmm. and you know, sometimes if you're crushing for finals and you really have to make sure that you study for it, then you're probably going to have to sacrifice going out on Friday night, Saturday night. You might have to give up your weekends for a couple of months, but understand that you're setting priorities. You're not making excuses. So I don't have enough time. I don't think it's a very good excuse, but to say, okay, right now I'm not setting a priority of my health or my going to the gym every day. But once I get through this, period, I'm going to realign my priorities. But I I think excuses lead us to always just feeling sorry about ourselves and Mm -hmm. pushing the blame on other people. This is not my fault. This is, you know, it's just not fair. These are excuses that I I don't think are helpful for us. Yeah, for sure. So to return to the film Minimalism for a second, you have a bunch of great videos on YouTube, which go through the process of making the film. And I don't want to step on those too much if you want to check them out. Um, I'll be linking to them in the description to this podcast. I think it's a great story. But through that process of making the film, was there one moment or one experience that you had in it, whether it's a funny story or a time where you were talking to an expert that really kind of stands out to you as being particularly impactful in the whole process? I think the biggest thing that I take away from it is uh, the film that never happened and the one that eventually did. And it was what we call the Fargo incident. (laughs) which is I decided after two months of sitting on the film, so we edited the film and we started submitting to film festivals. We got into a couple. I ended up watching it at one of these festivals, like sitting Mm. in the audience, being with a a crowd of maybe 30 people who were watching it with me, seeing it from that vantage point. When the film ended, I was like, there are some changes that need to be made to this movie. Wow, okay. it It is not ready. It is not done. And I want to change it. And... I didn't know where it was going to go, but being that I was the the editor as well, I just sat down and I started working on it and started shifting it and changing it. And I didn't tell anybody. I just did this in secret because I was like, oh, I don't wow. know if this is going to work out. I just want to try it. Let me see if I can make some changes because we already have a film. Like worst case scenario, we can just continue to roll with that one. And then before one of our screenings, I brought it to uh, Josh uh, from The Minimalists. And I said, uh, hey, dude, I... I recut the whole film. <laughs> like, and I wow. think this is, this is what we need to do for the screening. Like we need to show this film. 
And then they all, like, he watched it along with Ryan and a couple other producers. And then they all got on a Skype call with me and they're like, this isn't better. This is a really bad film. Like, oh, it was wow. like really, it was really hard for them to say. It was really hard for me to hear. And it was, in a way, a lot of ways, heartbreaking. Cause I thought yeah. in that moment, I thought in that moment, I couldn't actually change it. I wouldn't actually be able to create the film that I wanted and we'd be stuck with the original film. And, I left that call and it took me a couple of days, but then I realized I was like, no, like I am certain. I am so convinced that this film is not ready yet, that it's not done. And this Fargo version may not be the version either. This may not be like the, the final product, but I know that the original film wasn't it either. So I just got back to work and I just busted my ass. And they, then we ended up having more of a conversation. I brought them into the loop. Yeah, sure. We talked about the changes and we went like 10 minutes at a time. Okay. And then we went like, all right, this is what I'm changing about the film. This is why I want to change it. Here's the reasons behind it. I think it's going to take, make a more compelling story. It's going to, you know, cover more ground or whatever it is. And it was, it was a battle for sure. Like we both had like me and my producers had different ideas and opinions about what was the best version of the film, but I just kept working at it and I was relentless. I was mm. like, this is my shot. This is my yeah. chance to make the best first film I ever can. And I'm like, mm -hmm. how many times are you going to be able to make a documentary about minimalism and about simple living? Like, This is a movement. There's one chance to do it. So I just, you know, I sacrificed a lot during that time and I worked 10, 12 hour days a lot of times. And I did everything myself and the edit it from the sound design. Uh, I had a friend help with the color grade, but I did all the editing. And then eventually we got to a film where I don't know how we did it, dude. I'm not joking. Like it was down to the wire where we had like a week to finish it. And everybody's like, yep, this is it. So happy. Like, wow. I sent, yeah, I sent it to them, uh, to Josh and Ryan, not knowing if they would like it, but knowing that this was the final version that we didn't have a chance to edit anymore. And they just like replied back like, wow, <laughs> like this is it. That's an awesome accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. But it feels, it just feels really good. It's like you, you, you wrestle with that as a creative and just in life in general, you, you wrestle with the doubt, but a lot of it just comes down to believing yourself and comes down mm. to your gut and just knowing for certain the direction that you want to take something and mm. not mm -hmm. letting yourself put out mediocre work. Yeah, no, I mean, at a certain point, what you're describing is an experience internally where something just wasn't right and you had to do what you had to do to get it to the point where you felt really satisfied and fulfilled about it. It kind of returns to that very first point you made where you're redefining success. And I'm sure that like maybe the original version of the film would have been like perfectly quote unquote successful, but it wouldn't have felt right mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. And I think that that's really a great takeaway from that, that whole story, which is really great. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> it was good. It was, I mean, that was another thing where you just, you learn through the doing of it mm. and you build confidence every time you do that. Every time you lean in, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that that came with. And yeah, a lot I got of phone calls that were tough. Yeah, and it's, but going through it, you, you, you become stronger. And in most cases, your relationships will become stronger as well, which it did with making of the film. Like all of us got to trust each other more, hear mm. each other out. You also have to become a good listener too. If somebody doesn't agree with you, you can't just bulldoze over them. You have to listen to their point of view and you have to hear, their, hear them out. And like maybe a thousand lessons I learned from making that film, but that was definitely the one that continues to stick with me. Yeah. So one of your favorite quotes that you mentioned during, uh, I think it was a podcast, is also one of my favorite quotes. It's everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face uh, <laughs> yeah. from the great Mike Tyson. Do you have a punched in the face story that particularly stands out for you? Oh, I've been punched in the face a lot. <laughs> Not terribly, though. Like, I've been pretty fortunate uh, in my life that there haven't been too many horrible things. I mean... One, and this is the first episode of my podcast, I talked about it, is this story of doing a, uh, a reality show for mm. a show on the channel E. And, you know, I was freelancing. I didn't have a lot of money and I needed to take every job I could get. And this job came to me and it was for a camera operator w using a camera I had never used before. And mm. I said, yes, 
I absolutely can film with that camera. I use it all the time. And then I got the camera like the night before so I could just run through it and I'm learning it. And okay, there's the record button. Great. There's like the playback button. Great. And then the next day I go and to the shoot and uh, it's a bit overwhelming just being on a set of a reality show and Mm -hmm. having a crew talk in my ear having an earplug where they're yelling at me like they're like push in push in and i didn't know what that meant they meant zoom in <laughs> but i didn't know if they meant like walk in or zoom sure, sure, in. yeah so i was doing a little bit of both <laughs> and it was really uncomfortable and then there was one moment in particular apart from the fact that i had actually recorded in the wrong settings the entire day oh man yeah and so it was like all it was bad it was like shooting an sd versus hd it was like Mm -hmm. a really bad mistake that i don't know if they were able to salvage there was one moment where this person went on a crazy rant about her daughter who was competing in this talent show and then i was hitting record in between takes Mm -hmm. and the producer caught me and said well are you hitting record don't don't just keep recording the whole time and the very next take this woman had this crazy rant that I had to capture. And then I looked at my camera and I realized that I wasn't recording. Oh, no. And I didn't say anything. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody because I was like, there's no way. <laughs> I would rather never work with them again because I didn't want to anyway. I was like, this is horrible. I really don't enjoy this. Than to ever have to have that conversation of yeah. uh, I did not film <laughs> the take that you so desperately wanted. Needless to say, I never heard back from them again, but it was like a punch in the face and in the gut, really, that I was, I felt horrible. I felt like a failure. I felt like I didn't uh, deliver to them. I wanted Mm -hmm. to do, every time I want to show up, I want to do my absolute best. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I didn't give my best that day. And it stuck with me for a little while, but eventually... A lot of times these stories where you get punched in the face or get punched in the stomach eventually turn into funny stories down the road of embarrassing yeah, moments. Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're all going to have those moments of embarrassment or where things like fall apart or whatever it might be. What do you personally do to cope with that when that happens? Family, friends, like just talk about it with people, laugh about sure. it with people in the moment, get it out of your head, uh, journal about it. There's a lot of different ways. I think if you keep it trapped inside you, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. It's just going to torment and haunt you. And I have cringy moments through my like, you know, teenage years that I just shake when I still think back to it just because it's super mm-hmm. embarrassing. Oh, same, and, totally. Yeah, and I think that's just part of life and you just get over it and accept it. And I think that you get better every time you go through one of these cringeworthy moments that the older you get, the more you're okay with it, the more you're comfortable in your own skin and being awkward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you can't prevent it. <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah, that's great. So at this point, the Ground Up podcast is floating around 100 episodes. You've talked to a ton of people for the minimalism documentary. Uh, from all of that content, as you were saying there, you've learned a bunch of lessons, but that Fargo incident is the one that stands out for you about the process. Is there one lesson or idea maybe related to your own kind of personal growth and development that has just kind of seemed to come up over and over from different people? I would say most people, most everybody I talk to started from nothing. Hmm. And it's hard for people to really understand what that actually means because when you look at somebody who has 300,000 subscribers on Instagram or 50,000 Twitter followers or whatever, even if it's 5,000 and you Mm -hmm. just wonder like, how do they get there? Like how, like you don't understand that they started with zero, that everybody starts with zero Mm -hmm. and that you have to build from the ground up. That's, and that's a cliche uh, reference to the actual podcast title, but that's why I started it was because I had gone through so much in making minimalism that there were so many points where I almost didn't follow through with it. And a lot of that's because of doubt and doubt will creep in and it can take over and it can make some of the greatest art in the world never be released because people didn't think that they were good enough. And if you can overcome those moments when you don't feel like you have anything to offer, and if you can actually just get started, then you're on the path. And that's all that matters. You know, it's like a train track. Like if you don't get going, if you don't actually get on the train and start moving in the right direction, you're just going to be sitting at the station. This is a corny metaphor, but saying uh, like, what if, like, what if, what if I started? Oh, I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. I don't know which direction to head. It doesn't matter. Like just get started with something and then that will eventually evolve. uh, and, And you will likely be better off than if you sat around just wondering what if your whole life. Earlier during the conversation, you were mentioning 
just a simple question of like, what would you do if all of your needs were met? What would you do if you had 2 million bucks in the bank account right now or 2 billion bucks in the bank account right now? And I was actually asked that question by somebody else recently, and I found it strangely paralyzing because mm. I think that for most of us, we really describe ourselves or define ourselves by where we want to go, not what we want to do when we're on the way to going there. And uh, I mean, for me, definitely, that question was a big eye opener. And I think it speaks to what you're referring to right now. If you don't start the process of engaging with the things you really love, you're never going to start it. You, you have to take that first step at some point. Yeah, that dude, the one of the first the first interview that I ever did on my podcast was with my friend, Chris Newhart, a director mm. of photography. And the question was, uh, you know, how do you make it? And mm. it was like, how do you make it in a creative pursuit? How do you actually make it happen? And he said, you will never make it. You're like, mm. there is no making it. It's never going to feel like, oh, I've made it. I've arrived. I've done it. You're always going to be on that process. And I think understanding that and just, just like you really eloquently said, it's, it's being happy with the work you're doing and not defining mm. yourself based on some hypothetical future of where you want to be because that moment's never going to come. And even if it does, you're going to think about the next place that you want to be and you're never going to be happy. I mean, that makes total sense to me. I think that it's a true tale of life and also feels like a pretty great note to end this episode of the podcast <laughs> on. So I don't want to awesome, take too man. much more of your time, Matt. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Yeah, Forrest, thank you so much. I appreciate it. To give a quick recap, on today's episode, we talked about minimalism and particularly focused on the impact it had on Matt's life in terms of redefining his definition of success. It's easy for us to overfocus on distant material goals and lose track of whether we're truly happy in the moment. During this episode, Matt shared how he got into minimalism, which occurred after he was over $100,000 in debt after college, the impact of detoxing from social media had on his relationship with online content, and why he thinks minimalism has become so popular recently. We talked for a while about the challenge and importance of taking the first step toward distant goals, and he told a great story about a time when working on the documentary Minimalism, where he had to really stick to his guns and pursue his vision with vigor and clarity. So that's it for today's episode with Matt Diavella. If you'd like to check out his work, we'll link to both his YouTube channel and his Ground Up podcast in the description of this episode. His channel is really one of my favorite ones on YouTube, and he puts out fantastic content regularly. If you enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. So until next time, thanks for listening.